Good morning. Should know better than to put such a song like that before I get up. <laughs> I'll blubber through it. It'll be good. What a great time of worship. So glad you could be here with us this morning. I've been out of the pulpit for the last three weeks. Uh, the elders gave me some time to work on other things that needed to be done in the church, some writing and some cleaning up of language and so on and so forth. So I want to thank Aaron White and David Williams and Dustin Erickson who filled the pulpit very well while I was out. And so good to be back and good to be back with you particularly. So we're going to take a little break from the Psalms this morning. We started back into the Psalms in June and we'll continue next Sunday. But for this morning, I want to give you an encouragement in a little bit different way, and I have two reasons for doing this. First of all, tonight is our annual meeting as a church, and this is a time where we look back on the past year and have opportunity to praise God for his faithfulness, for the way that he has provided not just financially, which he has done, but also just through bringing people to the church to engage in ministry and the different opportunities that we have. So we're very excited for that time. There's details in the bulletin. We'd love to have you join us. The second reason I'm going to deviate just a little bit this morning is because in two weeks, we start our third year of ministry together as Grace Bible Church. Uh, And so there is reason, I think, to pause as we stand, as it were, on the edge of another season of ministry, another opportunity to see the faithfulness of God, and I want to give us an encouragement as a body to run the race, to walk worthy of the gospel, and to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so as we begin this new season, which isn't really new, but you know what I mean, It's a landmark. It's another year. It's another opportunity. And so I want to give us an encouragement from the scriptures this morning. And the way that I want to do that is to give us uh, a framework, if you will, a way of thinking about how should we act, how should we live together in the local church. God has not left us to ourselves to just figure things out and stumble through. He has given us, in his word, everything that we need. So as we approach another year of ministry, as we look back and see what God has done in the past, what should we say to one another? How should we encourage each other to live out the gospel in the church? And that's what I want to do this morning. If you have been a part of our summer teaching series, you'll remember that the first Thursday in June, I taught on something we called gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And that's what I want to do this morning is use those two things as a paradigm, as a framework for us to think about living and serving and loving together in the local church. And I'm going to make the argument that both of those things, right doctrine, right thinking, biblical thinking about God and man and sin and all that is necessary And that that kind of thinking produces culture. It produces the way that we live together, the way that we love each other in the church. We're going to look at a number of different texts this morning, so keep your Bible handy and keep your fingers nimble. We'll be turning around to a few different passages, but before we do that, I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me as we begin. Father, what a privilege to gather together as the people that you have redeemed through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we also have access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we thank you, Lord, that that you have done everything necessary for us to come to you, to be drawn to you, Our standing with you, the forgiveness of our sin, the way that we live together is in no way a reflection of our work. It is all an act of your grace. And so this morning, Lord, as we answer the question, what does it mean to have gospel doctrine and gospel culture operating side by side in the church, would you give clarity? Would you motivate us, Lord, as Grace Bible Church to pursue these things? You have commanded us to love one another. You've commanded us to obey your commandments. And we want to be obedient in these areas, but God, we need help. Our sin, the influence of the world, the attack of our enemy, all hinder our growth in Christ. And so this morning, God, please reveal to us through the scriptures what you desire from us. And by your Holy Spirit, come and equip us for this work. We have no hope apart from the finished work of Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So please, Lord, remind us of our redemption. Remind us of the salvation that comes through Christ and then what we are to do with that as we live together and serve together and love each other. So come now, Lord, give me grace in the preaching and give these brothers and sisters grace in the listening. And would everything we do be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to you, the Father, through him. And it's in his name that I pray now. Amen. Amen. Well, my main point, if you're a main point kind of a person this morning, is that what we believe about God ought to influence and shape the way that we live and serve together in the church. So here's, here's the categories. What we believe about God, that is gospel doctrine. Those are the things that we gain from the scriptures. That is the truth about who God is, who we are, all of that. That ought to shape the way now that we live together and serve together inside of the local church. So I want to start by answering a couple of questions. First, where do we find gospel doctrine And secondly, what do I mean when I say gospel doctrine? Okay, this isn't just something I made up or pulled out of the air. It's in the scripture. So let's answer that first question. Where do we find gospel doctrine? Well, I'll tell you where we don't find it. It does not come from human wisdom. It does not come from our experience. It does not even come from our theological exercise. It comes from the pages of scripture. 2 Timothy 3 is the first text we're going to go to. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul is writing to encourage Timothy, and this is what he says, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he's telling Timothy, what you know 
what you believe to be true, the doctrines that you hold, you got them from the scriptures. That's what Paul means in verse 15 when he says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's his word for scripture. Okay? And so he's telling Timothy, all of these things continue. They came from the scripture. I didn't make them up. You didn't make them up. Continue to hold fast to these things that you have heard and that you have read. We have to come to the point where we realize that everything we know about God, which is true, has to come from the scriptures. We do not have license to make up whatever we want to think about God. He has revealed himself. And the scriptures are necessary for us to understand that revelation. Dustin preached on this last Sunday from Psalm 19 about how there is revelation around us in the world. You look outside, you go, okay, that's not an accident. Something made that. There is intentionality. But that knowledge is not enough to save a person. We need the scriptures. We need the word of God. The Westminster Catechism says this about the scriptures. I think this is very helpful. And you should hear echoes of what we heard last week here. Although the light of nature... And the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God so that man is without excuse. They are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. You hear what it's saying? That there is a revelation of God around us and it is enough to show us that there is a God. It is not enough, however, to close the gap for saving knowledge. To know God in a personal, relational way. To have forgiveness of sin, cleansing of conscience, all those things. We must have the word of God. The confession continues. Therefore it pleased the Lord at many times and in various ways to reveal himself and declare his will unto the church. And for the better preserving and the spread of this truth, he did commit the same wholly unto writing. Okay, the Bible is our foundation. It is where everything we believe comes from. And if it's not, we need to recalibrate and do it quick. Gospel doctrine is found in the pages of Scripture. So that's where we find it. Now let's answer the question, what is it? What do I mean when I talk about gospel doctrine? Now granted, this is a summary statement. Okay? I do not mean that in the articulation I'm going to give you here, it includes every single tentacle and various thing that comes off of the gospel. However, we can narrow it down to some main categories. And maybe you've heard something like the gospel is the message of God, man, Christ response or some kind of framework like that. Those are good. I'm going to change the wording just a little bit. And I'm going to argue this morning that gospel doctrine includes four main things. God's holiness, our sinfulness, Jesus' sacrifice, and our reconciliation to God because of Christ. Okay, so let me put some scripture under each one of those points. First, the holiness of God. We're going to go back to God's self-revelation, the book of Leviticus. You can just write these down or turn if you want to. We're going to hit a few different texts here. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. God says this to the nation of Israel. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. When God wants to reveal to his people who he is, it almost always is accompanied by this revelation of his holiness. 
Or we could go to the other end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, where we get this glimpse into what's happening around the throne of God. And we read this in Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, and around and within, day and night, they never cease to say, so what are they saying eternally around the throne of God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Same thing in Isaiah chapter 6, when God calls him to the ministry and he gets a peek into the throne room, he sees all of the created beings around God echoing this anthem of the holiness of God. God is holy, which means he is set apart, he is distinct from sinful man. In his holiness, God also has a standard for our living, for our behavior, for our conduct, But we must first understand that God is holy. In fact, I would argue that every attribute of God in some way serves or makes possible His holiness. That is the core of who He is. And all of the other attributes that surround God, His goodness, His justice, His mercy, they're all upholding the testimony of His holiness which creates a significant problem for mankind because of the next point in my summary, that we are sinful. Mankind is sinful. The Bible does not shy away from telling us the truth about who we are, and aren't you glad for that? What if the scriptures just said, God is holy, he's perfect, and you need to be too. Amen. Close the book. The Bible doesn't do that. God, in his wisdom, has revealed to us not only the holiness of God, but also the condition that we find ourselves in, which is problematic, which is why we need to see this. All of Scripture testifies to the sinfulness of man. We saw this earlier in the Psalms when we heard that there is no one righteous, there's no one who does good, there's no one who seeks after God. Isaiah would say that all of us have turned aside to go our own way, We go to the New Testament, you read things like Romans 3.23, which says everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or Romans 5.12, which says that since by one man sin came into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. There is this universal statement in the Bible that touches every human being, and that statement is that we have fallen short. God is holy. We are not in our sin. What bridges that gap? What hope do we have as sinful people? It's the next point. Look at the sacrifice of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, possibly my favorite text in Hebrews. 9.24, for Christ... Okay, so let me just set this up really quick. The writer of Hebrews is using the sacrificial system as a way to communicate what Christ did ultimately. So he talks about the temporary nature of the sacrifices and then contrasts that with how Jesus made a complete sacrifice. So that's where the language is coming here in Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, 
which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, okay, here's the contrast. So that's what was going on. But now what did Christ do? As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus dealt with sin completely. Sin was condemned in his flesh, Romans 8 would tell us. So all of our iniquity, all of our transgression, all of the sin and the failure, Christ took upon himself for his people. But we need to go a step beyond the sacrifice and talk about the last point, which is reconciliation being brought back into fellowship with God. Because if the sacrifice had been made and it was just there and we knew about it but had no way to participate in it, that would leave us in the same place, helpless and hopeless. But that's not God's design. He designed a way not only for sin to be dealt with, but then he gives us the righteousness of Jesus so that we can be brought back into relationship with him. This is the last point of this gospel doctrine, which is reconciliation to God through Jesus. And before we get there, I just we have to understand that there is so much wonder in what God does. I don't know if you ever just take time to think about the operations of God. You read the scriptures, you live a little bit of life, you experience some things, and do you ever just go, who does this? Who operates? I think about just, the, just about the sacrifice of Jesus. We are the ones who sinned against God. We are the ones who broke his law. We are the ones who transgressed. And yet it is God who makes a way for us to come back. He doesn't just say, you fell short of my standard. Now figure it out, you little sinner. He tells us, you transgressed my standard. Now here is what I have done to bring you back into relationship with me. Who does that? If I'm offended, it's somebody else's problem to fix that. That's a human, sinful way of thinking. God in his righteousness says, you sinned against me, you transgressed against me, but my mercy is greater than your sin, and I'm going to give you my son. Is it any wonder we sing songs like, praise my soul, the king of heaven, to his feet my tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing? The sacrifice of Jesus is stunning when you understand what it's doing. But more than this, God has extended to us not just the knowledge of redemption, but the reality of redemption by reconciling us back to him through the cross of Christ. Let me give you two scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and here it is, and might reconcile us both to God through the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus is not some removed, far-off thing that we can kind of look at and go, yeah, that looks great. Boy, I wish, that was, I wish I was involved in that. You can be. God made a way that we don't just know about the sacrifice. He can participate in it through faith in Jesus and be reconciled back to him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's about three sermons right there. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. (laughs) It's not enough just to look at the cross and say, boy, that's great. God has gone the whole distance and has made a way for us to be reconciled back to himself. So the four things that I have just mentioned God's holiness, our sinfulness, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the reconciliation through the cross are the main tenets. This is my summary statement of what gospel doctrine is. And then every other thing that we know, think, and believe flows out of those things. Does that make sense? So it's a summary, so we can look at it and say, okay, this is the main part, and then we get everything else out of that. So that is what I mean when I say gospel doctrine. Now let's shift gears, and let's answer the question, what is gospel culture? We know we have the truth, we have the objective truth in the scripture of what the doctrine is, what we believe. Now what do I mean when I say gospel culture? Here's the short definition Gospel culture is the expected behavior of Christians together in the church. Gospel culture is the expected behavior of Christians together in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, turn here with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy 3. And I'm going to start in verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. You see, Paul has expectations for Timothy. He has expectations for his conduct and for how he's going to teach the churches now to conduct themselves as they live and serve together. And he says... I am writing these things to you. So what are the these things? Well, it's everything Paul has written in the letter and everything he will write in these letters. It is the knowledge of God. It is the knowledge of our sinfulness. It is the knowledge of the cross. It's all of that stuff. So Paul says, I'm writing these things to you. I'm giving you gospel doctrine so that you may know how to have gospel culture. So that you might know how to live together as Christians. So what I want to do now is give you two examples, two biblical examples of gospel culture, and hopefully when we read these, you can understand maybe a little better how important this is that we know these things, especially headed where we're headed now in the next year. So gospel culture is a result of gospel doctrine that is put into practice. That's another good summary way to think about it. The culture 
is the doctrine that is put into practice. So let me give you two examples. First, a negative example. I don't know how your brain works, but I often am helped by seeing what something should not be, and it helps me to know what it should be. So that's what I'm going to do with us this morning. I'm going to give us a negative example and one positive example, maybe a couple positive examples. So let's start with the negative. Galatians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, and he recounts this situation where he's in Antioch, Peter is there, and Peter starts acting kind of wonky, okay? Normally, he's having bacon for breakfast, he's eating with the Gentiles, he's doing all these things, but as soon as the Jewish people show up, he changes. He becomes hypocritical. He does not let the, what he knows to be true about the gospel impact how he lives. So let me read you. This is Galatians 2, 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that would be the Jewish people, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul opposes Peter. You catch that? That's, that's the one we need to focus on, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct, their gospel culture was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's a problem. That's what he's saying here. So what was the real problem? Was it the eating? Was it that he should have just ate the food? The problem was that Peter did not put into practice what he knew to be true from the gospel. He was acting hypocritically. He was trying to separate himself from the icky Gentiles because he was trying to save face with the Jewish leaders. And the problem isn't the meat It's not what he's eating. The problem is that conduct was not matching creed. The profession of faith didn't match up with the practice. You see that? That's what Paul says in 14. The conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that is what we need to watch out for in the church. That's why it's important that we understand that gospel doctrine must inform and shape the way that we live together in the church. Now, We know from reading Peter's epistle that he understands the gospel. I mean, the opening of 1 Peter is some of the most sweeping, beautiful language of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of his people and the promise of an inheritance. And all Peter knows the gospel, but he forgot to put it into practice. And we see him ignoring gospel doctrine by forgetting gospel culture. You see that? Peter should have employed what he knew to be true. He should have put it into practice and not let the fear of man dictate what he did. Now, Peter does redeem himself, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But next, let me give you a positive example. So that's how, that's how we shouldn't do that. We should not live our lives in separation from what we know to be true in the gospel. Our walking ought to keep in step with the gospel that we believe. So let's give a good example. Now this is Romans 15. I'm going to ask you to turn here as well. Romans 15 verse 5. Paul is finishing writing this greatest letter that has ever been written and he's coming to the close 
And he wants to encourage these churches to live out the gospel that he has so clearly articulated in this letter. So Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. He gives this to them by way of encouragement. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another is the gospel culture. That's living together, serving together, accepting each other's differences. That's being patient and kind to one another. And the ground for that instruction, the reason they ought to live that way is because of what he says at the end of the verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's the doctrine. That's reconciliation. That's redemption, that's sacrifice, that's all tied up in that little phrase, as Christ has welcomed you. This is why I'm saying this is such a clear picture of gospel doctrine and gospel culture. So when we operate, when we live, when we work together in the church, we ought to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. That is what I desire to have here at the church. And for the record, that is what's happening I don't say these things this morning because this is absent. I say this by way of encouragement to keep doing these things. The evidence that our church values gospel culture is seen in the fact that I have to kick you out of the church every Sunday when we have to leave. You want to stay. You want to talk. You want to interact. You want to get involved. That's good. So keep it up. Keep pursuing doctrine. Keep pursuing the culture. Let me give you another good example. This is from 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, I know I just poo-pooed Peter for getting it wrong in Antioch, but uh, he gets it back, and he gets it right. By the time we get to 1 Peter 4, he is on fire, and this is the greatest passage, I think, in 1 Peter 4. I have lots of favorites. You'll figure this out as we get going. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Here's his instruction. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's gospel culture. That is a great articulation of what should be going on in the church. Loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, using whatever gift that God has given to each and every one of us and doing it in such a way that God, not us, is glorified. If you say to yourself, well, I love getting involved, I love serving, I love doing stuff. How do I know if that's really the outcome? Is that of gospel doctrine or am I just doing it? Here's the litmus test. Is your service drawing attention to you or is it drawing attention to Christ? Peter calls us to serve one another, to love one another, to show hospitality to one another in such a way that God receives the glory. That is true gospel culture. When we can love one another, open up our lives to one another, serve, sacrifice, all of the things in a way that God receives the glory. That is what I'm after and that's what you should be after.
as we live and serve together in the church. The church that lives out this kind of gospel culture, which is built on the foundation of gospel doctrine, will not be easily moved. There's also a danger to watch out for here, and I think I need to mention this because we've probably all at some point, if you've been around a little bit, experienced this. What if you have one of these things without the other? What happens if you have, let's just say first, what if you have gospel doctrine but no culture? What can happen in that situation? Well, a few things, I think. First of all, you can have hypocrisy. That's possible anywhere, I grant that, but stay with me. If a church is professing to have the doctrine right, hmm, theology, right, where we got it, but there's no living that out, it's a sign that they don't really understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, we have all of these imperatives, all of these instructions that tell us, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Put on as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, compassion and kind. Everything we read this morning from Colossians. So if we act like we've got the corner on truth, we have theology, yeah, well, you don't talk to one another. <laughs> there has to be this outworking. So if you have all doctrine with no culture, it can be truth without warmth. Cold, just kind of mm, sterile. That's not a place for growth. It's a place to feel condemned because you can't keep up with everybody else. Or what if it's the other way around? What if there's great gospel culture, but there's no doctrine to undergird things? What happens then? What if there's just dozens of ministry go, you know, ministries going on and everyone is serving and everyone's involved and yet no one could tell you why they're doing it? It's like, oh, we just want to love God and love people. I don't want to get into all that doctrine stuff. That's, that's heady. That's knowledge. Well, let me tell you something. Just break this news to you. Maybe this will be a new thing. If I were to ask you, who's Jesus? You'd probably say something like, well, he's the son of God. Doctrine. You can't escape the doctrine. In a church that so emphasizes culture to the neglect of the truth that undergirds the culture will be shallow. It'll be flimsy feeling. What if something goes wrong, which it always does, where do you turn? If all you ever know is we got to do, 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 and there's no, here's why you should do it underneath, it can be really fragile. We got to be really careful. As good as it is to serve one another, to love one another, to practice all the things I just mentioned, they have to be connected to the truth of the gospel Otherwise, it's an indicator that we really don't know the gospel. So are you seeing why I wanted to say this this morning? As we're coming up now on a new year, more opportunities, more new people coming into the church, more uh, opportunities to use the gifts God gave you to exercise those things, we have to understand God is the one who gives us the ability. God is the one who's given us the framework. And we need to put these things into practice in a way that honors him, not ourselves. And so I want to close by just giving us a few encouragements. What I'm calling you to this morning is to pursue these things. Pursue them with all you got and grab someone else and take them along with you. But I think there might be three, three little points of application that I would make here 
And I have three different groups of people in mind. And that's probably all three here this morning. So let me close by just giving you these encouragements. Maybe you hear about the gospel culture, the doing, the loving, the acceptance, all those things, and you say, well, that sounds really nice, but I don't think I really know God. Not in a saving way, not in a personal way. And if what I said this morning is true, that all of the culture, all of the doing is grown out of the knowledge of God and the gospel, then you will never know true gospel culture unless you know the one who made it possible. And I want to encourage you, if you do not belong to Christ, if you are pursuing action, if you are pursuing service without being connected to Christ, you're spinning your wheels. What you need to do is repent. Turn from your sin. Come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and apply yourself to understand. Why do you do what you do? Why do you have the impulse to serve? Because Christ served us. Or maybe you know the doctrine. Maybe you're here this morning and you've got books Books upon books upon books. And you've read and you've studied and maybe even taken some language classes and all this kind of stuff. And yet you struggle with the practical part. You've been burned by some relationships maybe in the past. And to be honest, you'd rather sit at home and read a book than get involved in somebody else's life because it's a lot of work. And to you, I say, you're missing out. There is so much encouragement, so much help, so much accountability, so much love that comes through the people of God that if you isolate yourself and just fill your head with knowledge and fact and truth, like good stuff, I'm not saying it's wrong stuff, but if there's no outlet, if there's no outworking of what God has done in your life, you are missing an opportunity to bless somebody else and to be blessed yourself. So if you are more on the side of, I know the truth, I just don't know how to work it out, then maybe the next step for you is to get involved in a community group. Get involved in areas where you can use the giftings that God has given you to serve the body. And maybe lastly, there are those of us here who it's really easy to get involved. We want to serve. We want to be busy. We want to always be doing something because it keeps us from having to deal with the difficult things. That happens. You can be so busy doing the work of God that you never know God. And so for you, I want to encourage you, dig in. You cannot escape the fact that the Christian life is marked by truth. It is marked by absolutes. It is marked by doctrine. Don't be afraid of that. Don't run away from that because, oh, I, I don't want to do the deep stuff. I don't, I don't, my mind doesn't get that. I don't get that. It's okay. This is not a comparison. You don't have to get it as much as the next person. But are you striving to know God through his word? Or do you just float and then get involved with everything and it kind of makes you feel like you're good? We all have steps to take here. The outcome of knowing the truth of the Bible is that we live it out. Whatever that means for you. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord and you've never been baptized. That's an aspect of gospel culture. Maybe you haven't joined a church, a local church, as a way of expressing your commitment and dedication and desire for care. Join the church. 
Maybe you haven't been in a Bible study for years because you're afraid that people will find out how much you don't know. Join the club. Nobody's got this thing figured out. But all of us have steps to take as we pursue gospel doctrine with the outcome of gospel culture. And my prayer is, as we start a new year, as we look back tonight and rejoice, oh, so many things to be thankful for tonight, and we look forward to the future of what God is doing here at the church, I want us to remember that all of our doing, all of our action, all of our striving ought to be rooted in the truth of the gospel. So may God be faithful to us again and allow us to see this connection between gospel doctrine and gospel culture and let's pursue these things together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had now to look to your word. And thank you, Lord, for the way that your word cuts deep to the root of what's really going on, that you did not leave things uh, vague or unclear, but your word is so clear. You are holy. We are sinful. The sacrifice of Jesus is enough, and we can be brought back into relationship with you through him. Lord, if there are those here this morning who have never put their faith and trust in you, maybe children, maybe older folks, please work through your spirit. Prick their heart, Lord. Convict them of sin and extend to them the hope of the gospel that there is forgiveness at the cross. Lord, for those who do belong to you, who are maybe struggling to balance these things, I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we pursue you, as we pursue truth, as we pursue one another. Lord, give us the grace to live these things out in a way that shows that we love you and we trust you. And even now, Lord, as we come to the table, this is an expression of what we do because of what Christ has done. So make it a sweet time. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.